from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week uh, by two attorneys, one that hopefully drafts the things to keep you out of court, and then the second one is if things go awry, uh, Job can help you out uh, after you get there. Uh, They will not be giving legal advice on this program, so uh, if you actually have your own scenario and it's similar to this, we still recommend that you reach out to your own attorney and get legal advice directly for your scenario. So, Louie, thank you for joining us this week. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and your firm? It's a pleasure, Brett. Um, I'm an attorney with Langley Banak, which is a long-term San Antonio firm, goes back many decades. And depending on the day when you're counting, we're one of the three largest firms in town. We're a full-service firm, meaning we provide corporate services, employment law, divorce, fiduciary litigation, cyber law, um, health care, and litigation as well as well as arbitration support and advisory. So that's what we do as part of this. I'm a corporate transactional attorney. My client base is typically small and medium-sized businesses across all sectors here in San Antonio and South Texas. And as part of drafting a company's contracts or trying to help the company with its sort of governance structure, I always focus increasingly now on what happens with the technology, with the cyberspace that is being utilized, usually as an ancillary tool to doing business. So I assist clients with their contract, with their digital vendors, with their web hosting company, um, their um, service companies in terms of software service, and all that good stuff. Uh, My name is Joe Jackson. I do general civil litigation ranging from trust and estate litigation all the way to uh, areas where cybersecurity has played a role. Um, Today I'll give two examples of real estate deals where hackers have come in at the last minute and stolen the money that's supposed to be changing hands between buyer and seller and the obvious problems that arise when that happens. Yeah, if if 20% of the money, which is usually that that closing amount, disappears in a real estate deal, uh, those deals go sideways pretty quickly. So uh, if you want to hear some more of the details in those examples, stay tuned with us. If you're uh, not going to be able to keep listening on 1200 WAI right now, uh, we go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on the Tuesday following the broadcast. So this will be uh, up on June 19th. You'll be able to find this there. Uh, if you Also, if you have a iTunes podcast or Pocket Cast on an Android device, you can listen to the replay uh, on those. If you would love to see a still photo of the three of us, uh, you can check out our YouTube channel. Some folks have asked, why don't you do video? And uh, our producer, James, has a, a real day job as well, uh, working in the cybersecurity industry. And Editing audio is one thing. Editing video uh, is a whole nother level of production difficulty. Louis, so uh, in the, the cybersecurity world, so as a small business owner out there, I mean, everyone's got an employee handbook. So I'm just trying to think through some of the things that every company has. How many of those folks have gone in or even are talking with you at this point about putting a, some type of cybersecurity policy into that employee handbook? Well, let's take a step back. Um, I wish every small business had an employee handbook um, because it does become uh, very helpful when you have a governance document that sort of guides what you do and how you do things. So, so 
That's not the case. Having said that. Oh, ouch. Okay. So this is this is the reason more people end up with Jobin sometimes. They don't have a handbook. And then you have a dispute between an employee and the company or the company and an employee. Yeah. That's okay. Absolutely right. Yes. Yep. So, however, um, especially recently, we've seen people knocking on the door that do have some type of employee handbook um, saying, well, what do we do about cyber? And 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 this is really um, coming up because there are increasing pressures on small businesses to concern themselves about the cyberspace and the regulations um, in that space. Um, I mean, truth is, not only big businesses get hacked, they're not exposed to cybersecurity issues alone. Small and medium-sized businesses are increasingly exposed to, to the dangers of cyberspace that really have an impact on their bottom line. And a lot of um, businesses still believe, okay, we have an IT guy. He's, he's monitoring this. Um, that's not your entire cyber defense line. Your, you, you know, your firewall is, is not where it stops. Um, you got people. And I think we are in a different age and people are really the front line that are being attacked right now um, through these hackers on the internet, through phishing, spear phishing, spoofing, wh what, what have you. Um, and so training people, be it in small or medium-sized companies or large companies, has become increasingly more important. So how do you do that? I mean, you, you train people, you bring folks in, um, you know, and some people, they have budget issues. You, you got to think about budget. You know, they can't have a big compliance officer sitting there um, handling this. It's simply not affordable to, in their bottom line. So, so what happens? You can, you know, you can reach out to folks. You can reach out to your platform providers, your um, cloud providers, your service providers. They may have some basic guidance you can go by. Um, you can check, check with an attorney, um, you can check with your industry organizations. So there are examples of policies out there that provide a starting point for you to, to look at. Every policy um, turns on a number of items and inputs. One of them is your regulatory framework. Are you governed by a specific regulatory framework in your industry or not? Or does just the general law of Texas apply to your business? Um, so that's one starting point. Second is, what kind of cyberspace stuff do you use? I mean, what do you use in your processes? What are your data inputs? How does it come in? How does it go out? How do you collect it? What do you collect? For what purpose? For how long? Sort of a little inventory. So really, this stuff is 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 very specific to to a situation. That doesn't mean it has to be costly. You can have a basic fundamental policy put together. And if you have a website and outward facing, as part of your outward facing business, you want a policy or notice on your website as well. So I think people are waking up to it because, um, because really of what we've seen in Europe over the past week. On last Friday, was 25th, no, it was over a week ago now, um, the general data privacy regulations in Europe came into effect, and all of a sudden, like within the week, last week, we saw people knocking on our door and saying, oh my gosh, my vendors, the people I do business with, some of them on the East Coast, some of them are in Europe, what do we do? You know, they're pushing rules on me, so what do I need to comply with? 
Yeah, and it's an interesting one where Europe has gone at the 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 full um, EU level. Here in the U.S., there's data privacy laws for consumer in almost every state now. Um, and the federal regulatory framework as a, a business guy in the U.S. Is, is pretty loose, pretty weak. Most of these states, uh, California, Massachusetts, and a handful have uh, much uh, more strict and clear disclosure requirements and, and other things. Uh, and so this is one that I've seen. It's been interesting for me that there's all this um, action now around GDPR where many of these things you should have been doing this already. Some folks asked uh, for my business, uh, my day job. They're like, well, wh how are you going to be able to deal with the 72-hour uh, disclosure guideline requirement in GDPR? And I was like, I think I already have something roughly in the 72 hours from California. So like, we're already set up in the event that something terrible happened to us that we would be able to get out and, and make those disclosures in a timely manner already. So I'm, I'm glad to see that this is raising the visibility. And I was uh, saw on, on Twitter here recently, like the LA Times is just blocking all customers from Europe. And I'm sure the LA Times has subscribers from Europe right now, but this is the way they've decided to handle GDPR. And they're in California. So whatever they were doing in California already probably gets them pretty close, uh, if not exactly to where they need to be. But maybe some of their advertising networks are other things. As you talked about suppliers and sub-processors, maybe some of their advertising networks that they use are not compliant. I'm, I'm hypothetically guessing here. I'm not sure why the LA Times uh, is blocking Europe. If they would like to comment, uh, we would be happy to uh, correct this and have them in here. But uh, I find that one is, is interesting. So you're talking on the security awareness training. So uh, like in the healthcare industry, everyone's supposed to be doing this. I would say that I'm, maybe everyone's signing a form once a year or once every couple of years or when you get hired, but I'm not sure how often it's really regular and comprehensive across the, the healthcare industry these days, uh, even though where it should be. So healthcare is interesting in Texas because we've had very stiff regulations at some point, stiffer than the federal HIPAA regulations for the past five years. Uh, House Bill 300 put a pretty comprehensive and strict regulatory regime in place. And your relationship with your service providers, with your processes, your data processes are regulated. And you know that because in your day job, I looked at your uh, daytime um, employer and, and, and that daytime employer of yours does have um, real responsiveness to those requirements. You have a business associate agreement uh, for a processor in place there that anybody can look on to the extent they need your services and they need to process healthcare data. So healthcare data is sort of at the front end. But I mean, we're looking at disparate regulatory regimes, right? The regulatory framework in the United States, I mean, we have over a dozen regulators, plus the at the federal level. Yeah. Now, <laughs> at the state level, we have the attorney generals. And again, we have sectoral laws. Um, what we can say for sure is in Texas, we have a data breach notification requirement. All right. We have a law. So that we do have. We're not as advanced as some other states. Like you mentioned, you mentioned the West Coast and the East Coast. If you're in the financial sector or the insurance sector, New York has a very strict cyberspace law. And if you are doing business with an entity in the financial sector or in the insurance sector that is governed by New York law, then certain requirements for having policies, like you say, in place that are employee policies as well as policies govern governing your institution are going to be pushed down to you. Yeah. 
so as a small business and they think, you know what, I'm only in Texas, uh, but, and so I don't really, I just need to pay attention to Texas laws, but if you have customers that are in other states or customers that are in other country, I mean, I'm and most, it, to me, it at least feels like unless you're a super local business, you have some customers that are either doing business in other states primarily or those customers have employees in another state, which may fall under those laws because of it's just sort of uh, like some of this with the GDPR. Um, I, how are... How are those the small businesses going through to think uh, about looking at these uh, from a, I mean, I don't even see a lot of small businesses getting an IT audit done. I, I agree with you on that. I mean, an, an, an IT audit, just to sort of an overview, a, a, a sort of an inventory even um, of what your IT process are would be, would be valuable. I think you're going to, every business is going to have to start looking at it, whether it's, you know, whether it's reasonable right now. It's going to be reasonable two or three years from now for everybody. Um, if you are using the internet or you're using a web portal or whatever it is you're doing on the internet platform in cyberspace, you're using that to do business and you're processing data and you're having vendors sit in different states or you're having your servers that you access sitting in different states and jurisdictions. You have varied customer base across the country. You're going to have to look at the state-specific regulations and you're going to need some help. I mean, you can do some of that yourself because, you know, you can just Google those laws. Um, right now, there are, there are only a handful here in between the West and the East Coast, most of them related to data breach, but they are developing. But what, what we're seeing really is a creep, though, which I think people didn't expect. And you were referencing that earlier, Brett, is this whole GDPR knock-on effect. Now, I sign up to a lot of websites. Guess what I've been getting in my mailbox? Uh, updated privacy policy notices. Including from the American Bar Association. So I got one from them. Um, referencing specifically the GDPR and, and in all essence, creating a policy that's GDPR-like without the key feature of the GDPR, which is the affirmative opt-in, the affirmative informed consent. So there is no click button. Now, from the European websites I subscribe to, I, I, I've also gotten those. And boy, GDPR sort of has a requirement for plain English, if you want it. It's plain English coming from some of these vendors. So, um, and another interesting fact, you know, who has been paying attention to GDPR? Probably the big publicly traded companies, right? Yeah, the folks in the marketing and advertising space. Most of, and, and GDPR is really about individual citizen information. It's not about information with European businesses. So if you're an address for a business, if you're collecting uh, other information about businesses' revenue or all things about a business, that's not directly covered under GDPR. So it's all of these big consumer. It's the Facebooks, it's the Googles, it's advertising networks, it's publishers that um, have individuals as subscribers. And yeah, I mean, those are the ones that um, are either prepared and dealing with it or some like the LA Times or I think it was one of the newspapers in Chicago, the Tribune, which they might all be owned by the same people, but were blocking them as well. The, the blocking the access, that's that's quite 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 amusing, really. Yeah. Um, the one thing about, um, I found, was that some companies, big companies that have consumers that sign on directly on the website because you get discounts or whatever it is, you know. Um, who did I see? Ugh. You know the Australian boots with the sheepskin? I got a privacy notice from them. 
And they are wholesale signing on to GDPR. They don't want the cost of implementing globally various regimes that are like that are responsive, for example, to Australia in one place, responsive to Europe in another, in the U.S. They're like, yeah, what the heck, you know? They are. Let's just have one global policy. If we're gonna have to comply with GDPR, let's comply with GDPR worldwide. And so that's what they're doing. So that's why I'm saying I think we're seeing a creep. And again, you are absolutely right, Brett. When we're talking about data protection, we're talking about individual rights and individuals' data in Europe. When you're a data subject, you're a human being under European law. So yeah, absolutely correct. As we're we're going through on the the data privacy piece, so you have that from one on the cybersecurity side. That so I mean, almost every business now is on the internet. You're doing things. Let's say you're doing everything correctly, but one of your service providers gets hacked and now they've sent you the breach notice let's uh, hope that that service provider's got something in place so now you're a small business and you're on the the receiving end maybe this is a, a, a someone who runs an online database for you you're storing customer records in it and they just sent you a notice that says hey we've been breached some of your records may be exposed um, so it, it, advice for the the small business on the the downstream effect of this. You just got one of these. It's kind of shocking. It might also be it might be more shocking than getting a, a served for a notice for a lawsuit because it's like the lawsuit. I know what to do. I call an attorney and I'll figure out how to deal with that in a court. But here now you've you've been given this data breach notice from one of your service providers and you're in kind of this limbo land unless you've thought thought about it ahead of time. I think one of the things is you got to get your team in place. Um, that's why you want to plan ahead of time, like you said. You really want to be able to know how to respond when this comes in or when you directly figure out you've had a breach or when somebody notifies you. I mean, you're going to circle the wagons. You look at your IT data. You look at what has been impacted. You see if you can work with your service provider that they can figure out what exactly was impa impacted. And you're going to have to look at the data notification laws. I mean, you're just going to have to because you are going to have to notify your customer more likely than not, depending what jurisdiction they're in and which jurisdiction you're in. Yeah. Now, this is, is one of the, the interesting ones, and we've mentioned this a few times on the program. If you have an office and it physically gets broken into, you call 911, you call the local police, they come investigate it, they come take care of it. In the cyber world, you digitally get broken into, try calling 911. No, actually, please do not call 911 for a cyber attack. Like, there is no, and call local police, not really the same thing. You can call the FBI, they have an investigation office, they'll work through it under certain scope. But if if you call the FBI about the fact that you've got 400 customers, some of them might be in Europe, and you just got a notice from your online email provider that they've had a breach, the FBI's uh, working larger cases than that. They're not necessarily going to be able to really walk you through all of the details of what should you go do next. So it, this is one, as we move from physical business to cyber business, it doesn't feel like necessarily we, we have the, the public support framework set up for businesses uh, that we do on the physical side of things. I think that's true. And I think at this point, I think Joe probably has some very interesting inputs on this because in his cases that he's dealt with on the litigation side, um, the FBI was brought in. So, so you can call them, but there are limitations to what they can do. And I think we, we need to sort of make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just kind of jump in here. Um, yeah. When, when money's stolen, you can call the FBI and they'll try and track it down. 
Uh, Especially uh, when you're talking, you know, down payments on a on a real estate purchase, and, uh, or maybe uh, even more than a down payment. It could be the actual full funding from the lender. Uh, so it could be the eighty percent instead of the twenty percent. Uh, unfortunately, in both the cases I, I've dealt with on this, the hacker got away with the entire purchase price um, at due at closing. And you know, the FBI once they're contacted, they're going to try and go and freeze bank accounts and recover money. Unfortunately, the uh, folks stealing the money are very quick to withdraw the money as soon as possible once it's left the financial institution uh, there's very little you can do to actually recover the funds and so in, in the the two cases I'm thinking about you may be thinking oh this is really abstract uh, I'm just an everyday person how is this how could this affect me well uh, really the American dream is buying and owning a home and uh, unfortunately I've dealt with multiple cases where at closing the purchase price of a residential home has been, been stolen from a hacker um, in, in one instance, they actually made it all the way to trial. The parties couldn't agree who was really at fault, and a jury had to decide that. Um, the seller's email address had been hacked. At uh, some point during the process, they had an a email address through a widely available you know, kind of free email provider. They didn't really take uh, very good care of their security. I mean, their, their password was a combination of name and birth date pretty pretty easy to guess and low on the security scale and what ended up happening with that is uh, just shortly prior to closing um, the money and up until this time all the wiring instructions had been from uh, seller's local bank to buyer's local bank very last minute new wiring instructions come in from the seller's email address to the title company saying we need to send this money to an overseas bank yeah um, at this point probably a phone call saying this new yeah, please verify out of band if you're out there ever if you get a suspicious message please verify out of band pick a second way whether if, if they contacted you via email pick up the phone and call them if they pick up the phone and called you you can spoof audio these days send an email like get two different channels to confirm um, we may put joe out of work doing that but this is the good correct right thing to go do if you see something that's different and it just doesn't add up, if you've gone from local bank to local bank and suddenly you have a foreign bank in, in Southeast Asia, that, that's a red flag and you should probably follow up on it. It didn't happen in this case. Closing goes through. Uh, the money goes to Southeast Asia, is quickly withdrawn, and even after the FBI got involved, there, there's no way to claw it back. So you end up with a, a lawsuit here. And um, In Texas, it differs state to state, but in Texas you can argue proportionate responsibility where the jury can assign percentages of blame to all the parties involved. So in this case, you had the seller who uh, you would argue they were partially responsible for what happened because it was their email address that was hacked. Um, you had the escrow agent title company who, you know, they have the duty to make sure the money changes proper hands from buyer to seller. Yeah. And you had another party. You had the criminal third party, the, the hacker. Um, we were able to present it to the jury that really the person who's responsible for this is the hacker. Um, unfortunately for the title company, the, the jury of their local peers decided, you know, that criminal, they're not here. The title company is. They can pay this judgment. And the, the title company got hammered on it, even though the jury had a choice to assign blame to a criminal. Um, unfortunately, a jury's not going to find much fault with an empty chair when they have a a real living defendant. And, and this is an interesting one as well. So folks are like, well, yeah, what's the big deal if my email gets hacked? I'm just a personal consumer and like, I'll just find out about it and I'll go ahead and reset my password and it won't be a big deal. But the, the hackers are getting more sophisticated these days. So they're sitting in your email account. 
with monitoring, waiting to see that you're buying a house, you're selling a house, you were just received an inheritance. They're waiting latent inside of these accounts uh, to be able to pounce on those opportune times with you. So if you see these notices that says, you're, hey, your account's been breached, please change your password, or uh, like Yahoo has sent out big notices, a whole bunch of folks have sent notices out saying, hey, your passwords are probably compromised, please pick a new one. Please pick a new one, and please don't pick one that is your 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 uh, dog's name. Um, those are sort of things that are going to get guessed very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, this was a situation where um, the seller's email address was, was hacked. The hacker that was inside their browser-based internet uh, email service was sending emails from their account and then deleting the emails from the sent folder. So even if they had logged in, it'd be difficult to know that they were actually sending these emails with these different instructions were really, you know, where I started at it, a phone call would have hopefully uh, put the brakes on what happened. We will go ahead and pick this up after the break where Joe will finish uh, talking through the story and tell you some uh, tips to avoid having this happen to you. Uh, we will have a news, traffic, and weather update and be back with CyberTalk Radio. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by two attorneys from Langley and Benack, one of the San Antonio's uh, longest-standing locally-owned law firms. You guys are, are headquartered here in the city of San Antonio, correct? We are. Yeah. Do you have offices outside of San Antonio? We do, all across South Texas, okay. in Carrizo Springs, Eagle Pass, New Brownfells, Joe uh, Brown. Uh, Carn City as well. Yeah. All across to South Texas, they are a full-service firm. Uh, today, we're talking cybersecurity and some litigation tied to that cybersecurity. Uh, these conversations are not legal advice for you specifically, so uh, if you would like legal advice, please call. Um, it's reasonable to have a conversation. It's much more reasonable to have a conversation than to put your head in the sand and, and ignore these things. So if you've had a data breach, if you've uh, had a, a some privacy thing that you're really worried about, having that initial conversation goes a long way in uh, kind of being reasonable and doing the reasonable things uh, so that you're you're held to one view whereas if you just kind of pretend you're an ostrich and ignore it uh, the in the event that these things continue to unwind it's not going to be good for you to to take that ostrich stance so uh, heading into the break we were uh, talking through a, a title company and a, a seller and a this suit went to, through trial and um, so jury decided title company's fault because um, the criminal's fault is criminals overseas. They can't really blame them. Well, I mean, they could, but then no one gets paid. So um, they decided the title company had enough of a bank account to be able to make the seller and buyer whole, so someone still gets to have their house in this case. So uh, if you uh, just join us here after the break, you can listen to uh, the rebroadcast of our program. Uh, it'll be up on our website, www.cybertalkradio.com, on Tuesday. Uh, June 19th. Uh, it'll also be on iTunes podcasts or uh, your favorite podcasting app for your uh, Android devices out there if you uh, listen to those while you're you're driving around. So, Job, uh, just picking up there, we were kind of going through the things that have been decided, and the title company probably should have noticed some of these during the that traffic and weather updates. You were talking about the email addresses even started to change. 
Yeah, and so, you know, one of the obvious red flags in this case should have been when you had the bank information changing pretty drastically from a local bank receiving the funds to an international bank, but also uh, something that probably could have been caught and really was presented to the jury was uh, the fact that the emails from the sellers uh, weren't consistent throughout all the communications prior to closing. Um, just for example, the the seller's email was, you know, their, their combination of their first and last name at for example, yahoo.com. Uh, and so, you know, if you were opening up your browser to look at an email, it usually doesn't show the email ending and just say, oh, you're getting an email from John Doe. However, some of the hacked emails in this were also coming from emails at John Doe at, for example, hotmail.com, where if you had slowed down, noticed the red flags, and realized maybe something's not right here, you would have uh, been able to realize that these were coming from completely different email addresses just using the same first name. Uh, so at first at first glance, it may have looked like it was from John Doe, but it really wasn't. Yeah. In your email client, there's usually a little button up there that says view details or something like that. If you, you click on that one, especially if it's an email about wiring hundreds of thousands of dollars, please click on that. But even if it's a, an email just about um, one of the, the scams that we, we see a fairly regular basis is during... Um, tax season, people will spoof being a company's uh, accounting firms or their payroll firm, and they'll say, hey, I need a spreadsheet filled out with all of the employees' social security numbers and birth dates for uh, tax filing information, and that'll end up into getting sent to people in HR departments. And um, click on those view details, check and see, is this really the email address from the person on the contact list that sends you? And uh, as you'd mentioned as well, then pick up the phone and call them. Like, do you really need this? <laughs> and why? And so kind of the, the second example, you know, that first example is, is a case where the hacking occurred on the consumer end using a less protected web browser. Um, at the time it, it ended up going to trials, there was some idea that uh, a jury might apportion more fault to the consumer for not using uh, good web-based security practices. And it, it, the crime originated uh, through their email address. Um, that's not always what happens. Uh, another case I've dealt with recently um, dealt with some grandparents who were moving from out of state to live closer to their grandchildren. Very sympathetic party, used their life savings to buy a house. Did everything right, went through a title company, found their their, their dream home to be close to family. And uh, lo and behold, they get a request um, from the title company through their real estate agent to approve wiring instructions. Um, and at this point, you know, in this transaction, your parties that you'd have here when the hacking occurs, this is another case where wiring instructions send money to a different bank, money's quickly withdrawn, the FBI can't get it back, it is your parties here where you have the buyers, the aggrieved party, the, the plaintiffs, the claimants, uh, you have the real estate agent who uh, they sue claiming, you know, you should have better protected my information or caught this. And you have the title company, which, of course, has the duty to make sure the money properly goes from the buyer to seller. And the third-party criminal that's out there that, that for all we know, has never been caught. Um, in this case, the hacking occurred on the title company. And the emails, uh, they had sent internal emails from title company employee to title company employee. And they're sending out this request for, to approve wiring instructions to the buyer's real estate agent. Uh, a red flag that should have come up at this point is the title company usually does not ask for approval of wiring instructions through email. That's usually kind of an in-person. So they already had some procedures to try and prevent this from happening. However, 
It just didn't get caught until hours after closing. You know, the buyers are relying on their real estate agent to guide them through the process. And next thing you know, you've lost your life savings on a home uh, that you don't actually get at the end and, and you're going to trial. Um, you know, that case w- was able to resolve itself outside of court, but the, this hacking and the real life consequences can happen on the consumer end, the business end. A lot of it can be present, uh, prevented by just slowing down, picking up the phone. If you're transferring large sums of money, try and do it with a, a personal contact on there, or else you end up in a situation where you're uh, e- even to get to the point where the title company is willing to, to give you the money to try and make this right, you will have spent thousands of dollars on attorney's fees to get there uh, yeah, and dealt with a, a, emotional heartbreak and frustration. And the house you wanted may not be there anymore because the seller's got to put it back on the market and try to get another buyer while this is all going along. You can't get an injunction or something to force the seller to not sell their property while this is all getting sorted out. Correct. And I'll add, in this case, they didn't end up getting the dream home. They had to get, yeah. get, get a different home. But uh, these different – it happens to real people. It's not an abstract concept, you know. Uh, I've dealt with it in the home buying process, but all these real estate transactions are, are prime targets because you have a large sum of money changing hands in a single transaction. And it just happens to real people and can be prevented by better practices at, at the, the corporate level and just as an individual thinking things through, slowing down and being cautious. Yeah. So uh, another one uh, that many folks in the listening audience out there may be impacted by is uh so let's say that you're a a restaurant and uh, you've got a, a liquor distributor and you you get a spoofed message coming from your liquor distributor saying, hey, um, we need you to update our, our banking information. We switched banks. Um, it goes into the accounts payable person at the, the restaurant. And so they go, oh, well, I've got an updated request from our liquor distributor to change banking information. So they go into your accounting system uh, and they update it in there. They just change the banking information. Just one email, nothing else. So they don't actually ask for money right now. And you, you wait a couple of weeks and you, you get your regular invoice in from the actual person at the liquor distributor and you see it as the accounts payable person at the restaurant and you pay the invoice off to the money goes to the new location. A week goes by and then the distributor calls you, their accounts receivable and says, hey, you guys normally pay us on time. Uh, why are you behind this month? And you go, well, no, I sent it out. Here's the confirmation that I sent it. And a phone conversation goes back and forth, and all of a sudden, at some point there, someone's face goes pale white, and they realize that weeks ago they had been tricked into changing the bank routing information on that payee account. Uh, and while you might have a dual authorization for sending an actual payment, maybe it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to that liquor distributor, it requires an approval from the person putting the invoice in and an approval from somebody else at the company before it gets sent out. Changing the banking information on that payee does not often require dual authorization in many of these systems. So we're seeing these spots where that money's been gone for weeks. Um, sometimes if, if folks only follow up on it every 30 days, it could be gone for 30 or 45 days before um, anyone gets around to it. And by then, I mean... It's long, long gone. Um, those criminals are sitting on a beach somewhere in a non-extradition comp- country uh, enjoying uh, probably some liquor from that, not that distributor, but maybe from that manufacturer. And I think that's where the policies that companies need to have come back in, as well as, as Job said, as an individual, as a consumer, be watchful, update you know, your malware detection on your computer, 
Um, change your password when your service provider tells you, you know, your email's been hacked. Change your password. Use a more sophisticated password for your files and whatnot. But the companies, I think, it's a different paradigm out there. It's a real wild west out there right now. And I think some of these basic things that we used to do where we would give bank account numbers over the phone because it was just safer. We didn't want to put them in writing or we sent letters. That's gone out of the window because email is oh so convenient um, to follow up and, and sort of people check their common sense at the door when, when we get to that. Um, employee training is absolutely paramount, folks. You've got to work with your IT guys. They are really, really good. The IT guys at our firm are phenomenal and I want to thank them for that. But we get daily or weekly reminders of the latest spoof and spoofing and phishing and malware that's out there. They tell us what to pay attention to. And some of these emails, they're very tricky. They even got me. I mean, you know, I know the basic stuff, hover, hover over the, the sender email and whatnot. But I mean, I got one the other day and it was something that was really targeted towards lawyers. And I had a colleague in my office and I said, look at this. Do you think this is legit? And I forwarded it to my IT department. And of course it wasn't. So really, when you get emails where you go, hmm, this is strange, stop, pause, look at it, send it to your IT guy, have your IT guy look at it. But this is by no means just the IT department that needs to be watchful. UHR folks out there and your lawyers, or if you don't have in-house lawyers, your outside counsel, talk to them. Come up with a comprehensive policy, employee policy, so important, employee training, super important. And when you have a policy, guys, you got to follow it. If you have a website, if you have an, a website that faces outward, that gets you customers through which you sell, you have a digital platform, please don't just crib a notice because it sounds good from somebody else's website and put it there just because it looks pretty and everybody has it. It has meaning. You have to teach people on your policy. You have to enforce it. If you don't, in Texas, the state attorney general will get you for deceptive and unfair trade practices, as will the, F as will the FTC. Um, if you fall under their jurisdiction or any of the manifold regulators that we have in this country. So be very careful. Take this seriously. It doesn't cost much to put the policy in place. I think your software or IT platform providers can probably give you a head start. There are a bunch of forums out on the system, on the, on the web, that some of your industry groups may give to you. So really what you need an attorney for sometimes is just reviewing it, tailoring it, and you'll be good. But But be careful because... These tricks that we're talking about today can happen to anybody. Yeah, and they they end up getting you in the, the day where you're really busy, you had a flat tire in your car that morning, you're running behind, you've got a graduation to go to for one of your, your kids in the evening for uh, school, and you normally would do all the right things, but in that day where you're behind and you're trying to go faster, that's when it happens. So if you've got a big important thing and you are in that hurry, you still stop, take the time, or if it doesn't absolutely have to be done that day where you're rushed or stressed out for whatever reason, punt it to the next day. Um, one of the ones with the attorneys we see on a fairly regular basis, so uh, especially like with Job, so he's an attorney of record on a public court filing. He's got a, another attorney that is opposing counsel that's a public filing. So these criminals now are going through, and they'll spoof an email from Job's opposing counsel going, hey, here's some discovery documents and with a link. And 
they've got an email coming from spoofing from Job to that other attorney. So you know, you're like, I'm working with them right now. There's a case. It would be reasonable that they're sending me discovery documents or here's a motion to settle or a settlement offer or whatever else. Please click on this link. So really hover over, double check that one. These attackers are sophisticated. So And they're using all forms of, of public information out there to um, figure out uh, how to make those messages something that's not just uh, about a Nigerian prince anymore. So like this is the days of the kind of mass unsophisticated phishing. Uh, they're over. Uh, these are, are very targeted, very relevant, and very believable. So if you're a company, it can cost you even more than just the damages. You know, Job was just talking about the attorney's fees and the in the title company cases and the actual money that the poor plaintiff is out. But that's not everything. You can get fined by the states, by your regulator. And if you're unlucky enough, if you're reaching into the European Union, if you're selling anything in the European Union, goods or services, or you affirmatively track European data subjects, those those are persons that are residing in the European Union, and you have a data breach, you could face incredible fines. Now, in Texas, our data breach law is sort of capped at a quarter of a million dollars in the aggregate. Um, it really depends by state and jurisdiction. But in Europe, if you have a data breach and it involves certain data, and a certain critical mass, folks, this could get awfully expensive. The fines in Europe are uncapped for the maximum violations. They're 20 million euros or 4% of your annual gross revenue from the prior year. And that means whichever the higher one is bigger. Off, yeah. Whichever is bigger, yes. Yeah. So this is really scary. And I mean, when we look in the US, the FTC, when they've been sort of slapping people's wrists, be it Uber or Google or whoever, and everybody's been sort of on their consent decree list, you know, you're talking about 20 million here, 25 million there, but these are super big billions and billions of dollars companies. But folks, if you're a small or medium sized business, 20 million euros a lot, and that's probably the LA Times or whichever newspaper that was. That You can yeah. kind of understand why they would be blocking access to their European customers. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's that's more than they'll make in advertising revenue for their European subscribers or more than they're making in European subscriptions, likely. Uh, that's They might be making more revenue, but they're not making more than 20 million euro in profit, likely, as the LA Times from European subscribers. I don't. If they are a public company... I don't look at their financials, so I'm I'm hypothetically guessing right now, but uh, believable. That's a a lot of newspaper and digital subscriptions to get to 20 million in profit from a, a litigation time frame on here. So let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, this for folks. So grandparents find out that they aren't getting their dream home, closing has gone awry. So let's uh, from that point in time, how long was it until? things were kind of resolved for them and, and what sort of steps does like, someone like that end up having to go through? I mean, I, I think you're looking at on the low end six months uh, before you get to a, a settlement phase where someone was willing to actually pay you money. If you're looking at a trial, uh, if you could get it before a jury within a year, that'd be very quick. And unfortunately for these people, you know, their, their process, you know, your first step, you realize what's happened. Uh, you send a letter uh, before you have an attorney to a title company saying, hey, this is what I think happened. Let's try and make this right. You have to go through the process of finding and hiring an attorney. Um, you know, if you're the consumer that's in this situation, you probably had to pay that attorney a, a retainer of thousands of dollars up front. So you're already, 
you know, you're already out of pocket the your life savings. Then, then you yeah. have to spend even more money to hire an attorney. Um, there's usually a demand letter process before suit. You file the lawsuit. Um, there's deadlines to file an answer. It, it just all takes time, and it, it stacks up. Um, and before you can even really get to a point of, of a resolution, uh, months and months are g- going to have passed. And uh, unfortunately, in these types of cases, you also have the added expense of paying for uh, a cybersecurity expert to actually trace what happened. It's not, it's not enough for me as the attorney to say, well, uh, it was clearly your email that it's had. You, you have to prove it. And yeah. that's something that goes through and traces the, the IP addresses of the, the sender of all the emails, uh, compare the language to try and determine which emails were spoofed, which ones were real. And all that's just a lot of time and money um, that could have hopefully been prevented with just some better, more careful practices on the front end. Yeah. So six months in the the sort of best case that you solve things out with a, a settlement um a year or more uh on the the trial side of things and then you're going to be out of pocket some money even if you you if it's a plaintiff there come out uh, and prevail at the end and even get your attorney's fees awarded the, you you had to have some money to work through this most likely along the way i mean uh, i guess in some civil litigation you could have a contingency uh, mm-hmm. but that's uh in a complex case like this that may be difficult to get um someone to take it on a contingency uh as this there's not very uh, clear likelihood of w- what the outcome may be um uh, this is one i guess is you're probably out advising clients you're like the jury could hold all sorts of different people accountable on this one there's no like in a in in a reasonable case in front of a reasonable jury this is what's going to happen because all the cyber stuff is so so new i mean at the the state court level um they're seeing uh many more um uh auto accident claims they're seeing um a lot of uh, family law they're seeing a lot of of other civil things that don't have anything to do with cybersecurity on a regular basis yeah, workman's comp claims, all sorts of other uh, employment law, all those other things all go in front of the same judge. So this is one as well where you're going, well, isn't there a cybersecurity specialist court in the state? And my understanding, there isn't. There's not. And, you know, your jury at the end of the day that's going to be analyzing, deciding these issues are, are going to be kind of a snapshot of the community you live in. So your jury is going to have a, a teacher, uh, maybe a firefighter maybe a, a bus boy from a local restaurant that's having to miss a, a week of work really without pay to, to sit here and listen to your, to your problems about what's happened. And there's going to be varying levels of sophistic, uh, sophistication trying to decide very complex uh, issues. Um, and there's really no predictability on that. Yeah. I would say you're most likely not going to have someone like me or maybe somebody that works in the uh, FBI cybercrime, most likely not going to end up on that jury. One of the attorneys on one side or the other is not going to want that person on the trial. Yes. In Texas, you're allowed to to strike a certain number of juries. And uh, unfortunately, if you're in the jury pool, someone would probably strike you uh, because you'd be able to explain everything better than the attorneys could. Potentially. To the rest of the jury. Yeah. So uh, as as we're, we're going through this, I mean, You've got folks out there um, with a wide variety of, of different state-level regulations here in the U.S. Uh, if you, you've got uh, some, some basics we've talked about. You should have a privacy policy on your website. And one of the things we didn't talk about, though, is, is kind of a business continuity planning, um, any of those things yet. So we've got a few minutes here to wrap up, Louie. If you could, 
help folks. So like these things have happened and this is what that business continuity planning policy is and how you deal with it, I guess. So I think one of the, the key factors businesses worry about is if their website is down, right? If they're making money through the website, then every minute that website is down, it's a loss of money directly um, to their bottom line. What do you do? <clears throat> you can have multiple service providers. That's not really very practical. I mean, interoperability issues left alone on the IT side, but I mean, just administering that if you're a small business. So you don't want to deal with it. So what, what do you need to do? You need to talk to your service providers. You know, you need to talk about business continuity procedures. You need to put them in your contracts, folks. You need to read those contracts. Now, a lot of stuff that's coming down from the service providers is going to be take it or leave it. That's just the nature of the business. Depending on how much you pay for a product, you're going to get what you pay for. So, but there are and I think, you know, Brett can attest to that because in his day job, he offers these types of services. Um, you can have a gradiated um, platform where if you pay more, you get more security. You got more add-ons. You're more protected. Your business continuity is insured. You know, you're going to have backup. That's in your contract, folks. You need to look at the contract. And before you go to a service provider in the internet space, do some diligence you know, try to find out about other customers, do some digging around on the internet of what people say about these people and their platform and their storage and their contracts and read your contracts. And and honestly, if you go to a local attorney here in town to just to review an agreement, you don't have to go to the big law firms of New York. You know, that doesn't cost you much if you don't have your in-house lawyer. I mean, it's really worth it because we deal with this a lot more than you guys do. We see a lot more. So by that token alone, we'll be able to hone on things that may, hone in on things that may not be obvious to you. Yeah. And if their terms of service and their privacy policy are not in clear, legible English where you don't have to be an attorney to have some basic comprehension, um, my general non-legal opinion is they may be trying to hide something. They may be out of date because place like regulation like GDPR requires the privacy policy to be readable by a non-attorney. So you get through some of the stuff now. Uh, they should be making it simple. These click-through agreements, the days of them being 80 pages long with stuff buried on page 67 that you can't scroll down through in a little pop-up box. Uh, that stuff's starting to change online. Uh, it's getting better and you should ask your providers and kind of try to hold them accountable to making things more clear. 